Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday school lesson for May the 1st. So we're kind of coming into summer. Think about all of the things that we're going to be doing, especially things for our students and our children. Uh, student camp will be coming up before too much longer. VBS will be coming up. Children's camp, all of those kind of things <clears throat> are right on us. People taking vacations, so uh, especially you teachers, if you are going to be out of town on vacation, and I hope you can be, uh, make sure your class is covered and covered in uh, plenty of time so that the substitute will have uh, time to study and be ready and, and pray and be prepared for your class because this work that you do in teaching the Word of God is extremely important and we don't ever want to take it for granted and uh, everybody in that class matters. It doesn't matter whether there's one or two in there or whether there's 15 or 20. They all matter and they all deserve our best. And of course, it's supposed to be for the glory of God. So pray about these things. Make sure that uh, things are covered and uh, make sure that during the summer giving stays up and attendance stays up, all of those kind of things. Contact your class members and check on them when they're gone. And if they're on vacation, let them know that they were missed. And also, uh, teachers, let people know that when they are out of town for summer activities, they can keep up with what we're doing in Sunday school by going uh, to our website where our video ar uh, videos are archived, all of our worship services, those type of things, because these Sunday school lessons are there too. And that way we can all be together and be on the same page and grow together. And uh, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful resource. So thank you for what you do. And for those of you who are watching because you had to miss Sunday school, thank you for doing that. I'm very grateful that you do those kind of things. And we will look forward to having a great summer here. And uh, the Lord will bless us. A lot of great things happen during the summer. A lot of life-changing things happen during the summer. Well, uh, getting back to our Sunday school lesson, we've been talking for several weeks now about the miracles of Jesus. And we've got another one that we're going to look at today, the feeding of the multitude. And we're going to go to the Gospel of John. So if you would, take your Bible. Turn to the sixth chapter, and let's look at verses 1 through 14. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Scripture tells us, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Everything had multiple names back then because you have to remember that Israel had been conquered uh, several times by a lot of different people speaking different languages. There was a time when the uh, Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, and the Assyrians conquered the uh, northern kingdom uh, called Israel. And then later on after that, they were overtaken by the uh, Persians, Iranians. And then after that, the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered that uh, land, Palestine. And then after that, the Romans. So you can imagine uh, just how mixed up things were, the different languages, the uh, different ideas, the different um, gods, goddesses that were introduced, the different traditions, 
All of those kind of things were in there. Very difficult to be an Orthodox Jew during all of that time. And so uh, that's why sometimes you'll find that uh, people in the Bible, they might have a couple of names. We, we should understand that because um, sometimes I've had people say, I don't understand which Joshua this is. And why does it have to repeat itself? Well, it's just like, how many Bobs do you know? How many Jims do you know? How many Marys do you know? And so we put a surname with them to kind of, you know, keep them apart. We also have middle names. And sometimes that can be confusing. Is somebody going by their first name or by their middle name? And that would happen in the uh, scripture as well. And they would have names that corresponded to whoever was ruling over the nation at that time. Many people, many Jews, as well as many places, had a name that was a Jewish or Hebrew name, or that was a local name, or that was um, a name that was given by their conquerors. And uh, even, even with that kind of stuff, just by illustration, when I lived out in Tuttle, nobody really knew the street names. As you would drive out of Tuttle and you would drive to uh, the uh, uh, Tri-City area, there were different roads that were out there. And most people said, oh, it's, it's out at the six mile line. A lot of people didn't know that was Sarah Road. It had two names, six miles or Sarah Road, that type of thing. Well, that's what you find here. So it says, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of uh, Tiberias, verse two. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed uh, for those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, that's an important phrase, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I wonder how many times that happens in your life and my life. Verse 7, Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have little. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place and the men sat down in number about 5,000 and Jesus took the loaves, the loaves the little boy had, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Isn't that amazing? Verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Don't be wasteful. And therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets, one for each disciple, by the way, with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over 
by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So when we look at this story and we uh, kind of outline it so that we can remember it and digest it and kind of like the bread and the fish, we break it up into pieces, don't we? First of all, let's talk about the crowds. The uh, interest of the crowds, while it may appear maybe from our standpoint to be somewhat noble, these people wanted to be around Jesus and indeed did come to Jesus. And for some of them, this was not an easy thing to get to Jesus after he had crossed the, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, yet they came, so we say, why did they come? Well, let's understand that their interest, according to the Lord, was somewhat superficial. At least that was the general idea. The general idea, the crowds were kind of fickle and they were superficial on things. Now, we don't fully understand this because in our day, we don't go to work for 8, 10, 12 hours a day just to have something to eat for that day. But back in the days of Jesus, that's exactly what they did. When the Apostle Paul said uh, to the Thessalonian believers, talking about lazy believers who were sponging off of others, he said to them, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, that's not just Paul being harsh and cruel. That is the way things worked for the average person back in the Roman Empire, back in the first century. You worked all day just to have food for that particular day for yourself and for your family. And if you didn't work, you didn't eat. So all of these people that would come to hear Jesus, that would come to follow Jesus, the ones that were sincere about it were doing it uh, to their own peril, I guess we would say, because to follow Jesus, to hear him speak, that was not just, oh, I think I'll take a day off or I've got some vacation time coming or something like that. That was unknown to people back then. And uh, the only day they would have off in Israel would be, of course, the Sabbath day. And they would be worshiping the Lord and being with family on that day. And then it was resting up to get back to work because on the next day, which would be Sunday, they had to work or their family didn't eat. That's how desperate the times were. That's how um, critical it was for all of them to work. So what do you think it would do to the average Joe? Remember, in those days, there really was not a middle class. You were either extremely rich or extremely poor. You were either a somebody or a nobody. What do you think it would do to these groups of people that the world would consider to be nobodies when they're destitute, and now they find out that they can eat and they can do something in this passage that probably rarely ever happened, and that is eat until they were full. Eat until they were full. A lot of times they would eat, and the bread that they would eat would be enough to keep them going, and maybe to satisfy a a stomach that is growling, but not enough to really be full. I wonder, as I read this, and there's no way to know, we just kind of have a little speculation, had they ever been full before? 
If they had, was how often did it happen? Maybe on Passover? Maybe? I don't know. But it sure was a nice feeling now to have your belly absolutely full. And so the people were following Jesus because of what he could do for them. Now they knew he must be some sort of man of God. They didn't know what. They knew he must have some type of supernatural power. They had seen it. And by the way, keep in mind that when great multitudes like this would gather around Jesus, he did not have a PA system or anything like that. And so it's very possible that there was a group of people in that crowd that could not hear everything that he had said, but they could see the things that he did. And that would get their attention. He was a miracle worker. It's obvious that he uh, is a miracle worker. In fact, in John chapter 3, even a highly educated and skilled religious leader, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus said to him, we know that you were sent from God for no one can do these things except that God is with him. And so people seeing that they knew and they could watch this kind of stuff and they wanted to see more of it for one thing. But what are they going to do if following Jesus or going to where Jesus was meant that maybe they or their family did not eat? And so... Um, there's a little bit of superficiality about this because uh, Jesus goes over uh, the Sea of Galilee and he sees the multitude following him. Some of them doubtless were coming because of uh, Passover and some of them were just following him. They walked maybe around the sea where Jesus went straight across. But John chapter 6, verse 26, gives us a definitive answer. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, listen to this, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You know, when people get a good thing, hey, we might as well stick around because there might be more to come. And that's what they hoped for. So the miracles were clear. They were open. They were accessible, not just to the elite, not just to the religious leaders, not just to the wealthy who could finance the ministry of Jesus. Back then, there were a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, one person I read said that there were probably as many as 300 so-called messiahs in the time of Jesus. But these so-called messiahs really had very little use for the common people unless it was to serve their purpose of stirring up a revolution or something like that. But most of the time they were going after the religious leaders, the, the elite, the noblemen, those kind of people, because one of those well-off people could finance the work of a so-called messiah maybe for a year or more like that, or maybe they would keep it going. But Jesus was different. He didn't really need that, and he wasn't looking for that. And he did things healing the little people, the insignificant people, the outcast. You think about the lepers and where they had to live and how they had to walk along shouting out, unclean, unclean, so that people could get out of the way. And yet Jesus not only spoke to them and was kind to them, but he touched them. And don't you know 
that when Jesus would touch a leper, there would be a gasp that would come up from the crowd because normally that meant that Jesus would get leprosy. Except when the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus, God with us, touched the leper, Jesus didn't become contaminated. The leper became clean. All of these things were seen, and they were done in public. In fact, when Jesus was on trial, and Pilate's asking him questions about it, Jesus makes a response saying, I haven't done anything secretly. Everything has been out in the open. Jesus didn't hide. There wasn't any uh, thing going on like that that was clandestine or subversive. It was all done out in the open. He was very open and upfront about who he was and why he was here and what his ministry was. And the people could see that. And so they wanted to be around it, not necessarily because they were repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as a Messiah, but because it was entertaining, it was a lot of fun, it was interesting, they were wondering what he was going to do next, and they got food without having to slave all day and toil in menial labor just for a little something that uh, may or may not be adequate. Now, the miracles did have spiritual meaning. They were signs, but that's not really what a lot of these people were after. They were more after the food. And the people, as we uh, know from reading the scripture and understanding it as we do, they were depraved and they were blinded. In John chapter 12, 37 through 43, it says, though he had done so many signs, that's an important word, signs of his Messiahship before them, they still did not believe in him <clears throat> so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Ready for this? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory or the praise that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you can see they were kind of superficial. This is always a problem in the ministry. This is always a problem. We want to help people. We want to have compassion on people. That's what Jesus did and we're commanded to do it. But sometimes we're quick to claim, oh, we had X number of converts and all of this stuff that God is doing. And the truth of the matter is we don't always know, do we? Because sometimes people follow Jesus in a superficial manner. Whenever Isaac and I would go to India, one of the things we found out over there is that Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland were the face of Christianity over there. That's how they viewed even what we were doing through those kind of eyes. And those guys go over there to a, 
uh, an impoverished country like India, where there's a lot of disease and there's a lot of hunger and a lot of poverty, and they promise these people, if you will just trust Jesus, you'll be healthy and you will be rich and your family will be well taken care of. And of course, in India, it doesn't take much to be considered rich. Again, like in the first century that we talked about earlier, there's not really much of a middle class in India. It's either the well-off or the extremely poor. And if you've ever been like we have into some of the slums, I mean, it is really, really, really bad. In fact, when Jason Job was over here, the pastor from India, I took him and showed him where at the time we were doing our mission 405 and he looked at me incredulously and he goes, these are where your poor people live? Because it was so much better than anything that they had in India. Well, that's what's going on there. And so many people in India will respond in these crusades and they're not really repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus. Their Hinduism just allows them to add another god to their string of gods. They have many gods and goddesses, and one more can't hurt. So let's put the Jesus God with all of the other gods, and let's see if something happens. Well, maybe um, the crusade feeds them that particular time. Maybe they're given some money. I don't know. But uh, that sure sounds good to them, and so they want to be a part of that. That's what was happening here. And they're following the Son of God, and it's kind of uh, superficial. They like being fed. Now, secondly, I want you to notice the compassion, the compassion here of Jesus, and that it was genuine, okay? Now, why do I word it that way? Superficial on the part of the people, but Jesus is real. He's authentic and he is genuine. This is a time where verse four says the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. And so this meant that people had to come from Galilee down to Judea. And Judea is where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. And so they were required to show up for the feast a Passover. So doubtless, some of these people in the crowd were not just the, you know, the, the rabble who just happened to be following Jesus. They were respectable and honest and sincere and religious people on their way to the Passover. And so Jesus, when he looked at them, he saw the great multitude, the sincere as well as the superficial, those who were honest as well as the dishonest in, in all of this. And what does he do with this? Something that we're kind of lacking today. And he is moved with compassion, another gospel says. And in the one we're reading, he looks at them as they are coming his direction. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And uh, of course, it's a test. So all of these people that are coming whether they're coming to follow Jesus or they're on their way to Passover and just stopping by to see what's happening or what the crowd is doing. And Jesus, we find, is moved with compassion when he looks at them. Now, it's interesting that he asked Philip where they're going to buy bread because according to John chapter 1, verse 44, Philip was local to that area, Bethsaida, and this was a test. 
Are you going to trust that Jesus will provide? Do you turn to Jesus? And it's interesting that Philip, when he's asked the question, where are we going to get the bread, that Philip doesn't go, Lord, I don't know. We don't have the resources. You'll have to provide it. What are you going to do? And just like us, Philip begins to calculate, oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? How are we going to get all these people taken care of? Because we tend to look at our human resources rather than looking at the power of the Lord. And so uh, Philip is looking at all of this through the eyes of finances, through the eyes of human ability, through the resources of what they already have. And we get a clue here that this is said to Philip simply because the Lord was testing him. Uh, the Lord may be testing you right now, monetarily, financially. The Lord may be testing you with some situation. The Lord may be testing our church. There may be some needs that we have. And the Lord is just teaching us how to trust him and getting us to quit depending upon ourselves, but to get on our face and to ask the Lord what he is going to do. That's always, always a problem for us but it is always a means of grace and a means to grow and a means to glorify God, just like in this situation. Philip didn't have the money. Philip didn't have the resources and they didn't have them when they put them together. Which brings us to number three, the need of the multitude. And it was what we would call desperate. Remember, these people generally did not have enough food for more than one day. And so to travel like this, they probably used whatever food they had. And uh, what are they going to do? And Jesus knew the situation and the disciples would know that situation as well. And so Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Now that's plural for denarius. Denarius is singular. Denarii is, is plural. Okay. 200 denarius, we might say. Uh, is not enough to feed them. Well, why does that matter? Well, the denarius, one denarius, was an average working man's pay for a day of work. You know what Philip is saying here? 200 days wages would not be enough to feed this crowd to even give them just a little bit. That's about eight months, isn't it? And so uh, that's a lot of money. Would you give eight months of your salary to feed people? Uh, that's what we have here. It's not sufficient that every one of them may have a little. And then we find that Andrew, the guy who is always bringing people to Jesus. In the church I grew up in, they had a group of men that went out visiting every week. They called themselves the Andrew Club. Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. They wanted to be like Andrew. And here again, we find Andrew and he says, oh, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But even he says, but what are they among so many? And so that's all that they have. So as Peter is, uh, pardon me, Philip is calculating all of this and Andrew is bringing the boy to Jesus in his typical fashion. We find here that we look at the lunch, the resources they have, pretty meager. Five loaves, two fishes. And even at that, we need to have a little better understanding because, um, you know, you could get a, a fish sandwich or something somewhere that might be pretty substantial, not this. 
Barley loaves were the bread of the poor. There just wasn't much to them, and they weren't all that satisfying. Nobody really wanted them. A barley loaf was um, the lunch, the food of a poor man. This boy came from a very poor family. And fish in those days, because of lack of refrigeration and all of that, was rarely ever fresh. But the Sea of Galilee swarmed with small, you ready for this? Sardine-like fish. You ever seen a sardine? Sardine-like fish, which they would take and they would uh, pickle them. They would preserve them. And that's probably what this lunch was. Five little loaves of undesirable barley bread and uh, a couple of little pickled fish the size of a sardine. And so this is pointed out for us because the people reading this originally would understand this is a huge, huge miracle, an unheard of, unprecedented thing. It's uh, something of tremendous magnitude. And of course, as we've seen before, it was a sign of the deity and the Messiahship of Christ. And so number four, the power of Jesus was manifested. There's not enough there. If you put everybody's food together, whatever might have been left, there wouldn't have been enough to even touch the hunger or the needs of the crowd. And yet Jesus takes this boy's lunch the five loaves and the two fishes, and we see his power because in verse 10 it says, make the people sit down. He doesn't tell them why. Tells you something about them, doesn't it? And there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now understand that doesn't count women or children. That's just the men. That's the way they did it back then. And Jesus took the pieces, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples then distributed to those who were sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. How did that happen? They just kept dividing it, and they kept dividing it, and they kept dividing it, and they kept dividing it. And I suppose... Had there been enough people there to uh, break it off and give it to, they could still be doing it today. This was an unlimited thing because you see the limitation of humanity. It's always this way. Jesus told us that the flesh profits nothing and apart from me, you can do nothing. But when you see the limitless power of God, that ought to increase our faith and build our faith in all of this because out of little The old song says little is much when God is in it, and that is true. And so they ate as much as they wanted. And so uh, when they were filled, he told the disciples, gather up the fragments, the leftovers that remain. And there were 12 baskets that were filled with the uh, fragments of the five barley loaves uh, and the fish which they had eaten. So when you think about this crowd, it's an enormous crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children. And people then tended to have uh, multiples of children. Uh, This could be like 20,000 people plus, depending on how many children there were. If each man had a wife and then out of them they had at least two or three or more children. I mean, this is a big, big number. 
And one writer said that Jesus' prayer was likely the typical Jewish blessing of that day. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who causest to come forth bread from the earth. It was probably a very simple prayer and probably one that they all said and they all were familiar with. And then, man, something tremendous happens when Jesus begins to break the bread. And I would like to just stop here for a second and say, there's something very wonderful that happens when things get broken in the hands of Jesus. And that's why the Lord in Psalm 51 doesn't despise a broken heart. Do you have a broken heart? Do you have a broken life? Have you come to the end of yourself? You think that that makes you unusable. And I'll say to you, that's exactly where you need to be to see the power of God. Jesus does special things with what he breaks. The fragments, where'd they get the fragments? Well, the Jews in Jesus' day would leave good sides pieces for those who served. You ever left a tip? at a restaurant? Well, they didn't have money. So what they would do when they got through with their food, if there was a servant who had helped them, they would leave him a quarter of the sandwich or something like that that had not been eaten. And that was considered good manners. That was considered uh, rude not to do it. Well, that's where the fragments were. The people there, all of these perhaps 20,000 people, left something behind of what they had eaten And so when the disciples picked it up, what do they do? They fill 12 baskets with all of this. Well, the Bible goes on to say in conclusion in verse 14 that these men that when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They didn't get it all, but they're moving that direction. They're seeing something here that blows their mind, and they're seeing something here that Pharisees couldn't do, Sadducees couldn't do, the Levites couldn't do, the priests couldn't do. This is something that only Jesus is doing, and it has blown their minds, and they are starting to say something like, hey, there's something to this Jesus of Nazareth, and they're moving in that direction. I want you to think about the fact, as we conclude here, just consider these things. Our love for Christ may be somewhat superficial. It's never perfect, is it? But his love is absolutely genuine. Don't ever doubt the love of Jesus. If you ever do, just look at the cross and let that settle the issue. Secondly, spiritual blindness is not a hindrance for Jesus. We think about people and go, oh, if they could only see and understand. Well, that's no problem for Jesus. He's the one that makes seeing uh, blind eyes see. He's the one that makes hearts and minds understand uh, what the things uh, of God really are. He's the one that gives us faith, by the way. Now, understand this. Our resources, meaning our abilities, Our possessions, our talents, our influence, all these things may be meager, but the power of Jesus is not. And when the Bible talks about the people that are saved, not many mighty, not many noble, why does God do that? Because he wants Christ to get the glory, not just the celebrity and the influence and the power and the wealth of humanity. It's not that he doesn't save rich people and celebrities. He does. 
but most of the time he saves the nobodies like us. And then understand that the smaller and more limited we are is a platform for others to see the greatness of Christ. You broken? Something been taken away from you? Have you become more meager? Do you feel like you are shrinking instead of expanding in your influence and your witness and all of that kind of thing? You know what I would say to that? Good. That's an opportunity to see the greatness and the power and the magnitude and the glory of Jesus Christ. You're more usable at that point than you ever have been or ever will be because God does not despise broken hearts. Well, I hope that uh, you've been blessed, fed, challenged, and uh, God bless you teachers as you take this lesson and give it to your Sunday school classes. And again, God bless those of you who are watching this just to stay up. I really, really do appreciate that. And I do thank you so much for your time.